Yes, Lord, I pray that you would speak through Pastor Lee this morning. May you be worshipped and glorified in this moment. Uh, I just pray that this would, time would benefit us, God. Thank you for allowing us to gather here and worship you in spirit and in truth. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Man, I love that hymn. I think I might have requested that in our worship planning. I think I did. Okay, good. I uh, sing that down at Brookfield Assisted Living about, oh, almost every time I can get a chance to when I sing with these ladies and I think about just my life. Man, what's it all about? And man, that song just ties it together for me. If you're a kid today, kindergarten through fifth grade, and you want to go to the kids' church, People are exiting, and my wife is right there holding Huckley. I've been trying to get Huckley to like me for a long time. It's a thing in the making. It's a thing in the making. I can't, some, some kids are just harder to reach than others, all right? He's playing hard for me. So they're going to go have fun. If you have a Bible with you today, um, you can turn to the Gospel of John. This is where we're going to be, and we'll be in chapter 7 today. We're going to be uh, continuing our series for quite some time going through the Gospel of John verse by verse, and we'll be in verses 1 through 24 today. I want to cover some announcements at the beginning of this today, because at the end of this, we are going to, as you can tell, there's these shiny silver things on a table, uh, and we're not a cult, that is communion, right? Like This is an opportunity for us to worship the Lord as the Lord has told us to do, and to proclaim the Lord's death, And, and, and we have these bad tasting pieces of bread that we'll talk about the significance of it, and then uh, the grape juice. And as we take those things, it's not so much those elements, but what it means to the body of Christ as we reflect on the life of Christ and the coming of Christ, and, uh, and we'll look in our life. And so there's a more, after the invitation, there's an other additional worship moment installed today that is unique. So we had a business meeting um, I think it was the last Sunday night. Okay, wow, boy, a week just flew by so quick. Um, anyways, as we got together as a church, as the members of the church got together from five to seven, we talked about wildly important goals. One of those was uh, ministry teams. We want everyone to have a seat at the chair at the table when we talk about ministering in the kingdom. And then we talked about student ministry, and we're following up on that today by having a, a, protect, a potential adult youth leaders meeting with Zach after church. And so if you uh, didn't get an invite from me and you're kind of curious about that, there is barbecue, all right? They're, I'm baiting the water. You can join us uh, to hear more about what that means as an adult. You want to connect with us. We partner with Young Life and our neighborhood to connect with kids where they are. And then the one I wanted to announce was the third one, the wildly important goal was men. And we are starting a breakfast club based off the feedback that we got on everybody's pages. Uh, We knew we couldn't please everybody. We don't want to spread ourselves too thin jumping into this, but we are going to to land the first Sunday in April, which happens to be April 3rd. We are going to begin a men's breakfast club. It meets on Sundays at 9 o'clock. Sundays at 9 o'clock. So if you want to join breakfast club, uh, you can talk about it. It's not like Fight Club, okay? You can talk about it. You can invite people. Uh, we'll be meeting on Sundays at 9 o'clock. And so that'll be April 3rd. We'll be kicking that off. And then also, if you've been missing, man, our midweek because of work or just things that are going on in your life, or frankly, you're just scared of what we're doing and you'd rather at least hear the content, 
We've been putting that on Spotify or on our website. I would encourage you to listen to that. There's such good content about how to have spiritual conversations with people. That's what we're talking about is evangelism on Wednesday nights. We'll be continuing that as well. Um, it'll be Wednesday night at 6. We meet in here. It's kind of more stripped down. We're all off the stage and we just worship for a brief time and then we get into to what we're talking about, which is how to talk about Jesus with other people. Um, and so, anyways, we want to avoid those pitfalls that you see. Um, you can check all our audio out there as well. And then I think I've hit all the critical things that pertain to what needs to be talked about as far as announcements go. All right, so in John chapter 7, 1 through 24, we see two scenes here as we're going to read the text, and I'm going to tell them about you now so that when we read it, you can kind of reflect on it. The first thing you're going to notice is that Jesus is with his brothers before this thing called the Feast of Booths, and we'll talk about the Feast of Booths. And then we also see in the second part is that Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. And there's, this is one of those passages, that we'll talk about that even more, that you really got to get your pickaxe or your shovel. Uh, this is rocky ground. It is hard to get to the good spots, the good stuff of what you're supposed to get. It's one of those passages, if you're preaching and you're looking for like, you know, more topical as you're going through it, you might even very well skip over these verses. But I'm glad we're not doing that because there's such good stuff right here. We're going to pull it out, show it to us, and grab it. All right, so let's read the text. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in oh wow, I pushed that button. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. This is confusing, is it not? He just told them he's not going, his time has not yet come. Yeah, what is he doing? Going. Okay, if you aren't confused yet, I was, all right? Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They're, catch that, they, they go... He really does know some stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think he might have had a clue in on being part of you know, the whole God thing. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know that whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. 
and got him. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Boy, you might underline those last words. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus is like, you guys need to wake up and smell the coffee. You need to smell the roses here. You need to see some things. And the thing I want to say that will be helpful to us as we, as we talk about these texts and these verses is that there are major, there's a major contrast that we see in what Jesus holds out in these events and what the world is holding out for in these occurrences. Um, you'll find this because if any time, remember when we were looking at when Mary goes to Jesus at that wedding in Cana and she's like, they're out of wine. You need to do something. And she looks at Jesus and says, you need to do something. And he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And we're like, woo, Jesus getting sassy. You know, but no, that's, not, that's us reading from our, our, our perspective. He is literally speaking prophetically, looking past her moment of requesting some divine signs and different things of that nature. And Jesus is looking towards the cross when he says, my time. And this phrase, my time has not yet come, is all through the gospel in here. Every time you see it, Jesus is dwelling on a deeper thought than the people are in the moment. That's pretty interesting to notice. He almost carries, and this is what I want to coin, a distinctiveness about himself. Jesus is distinctive. And then there's also some important questions that are being asked. Although they're not being asked explicitly, they are being asked very indirectly. And here's what I would say that they are. Number one, what is most important to human beings? You're like, I didn't see that in the text. We'll talk about that in a minute. And number two, what is true success? I mean, these, these are not being asked explicitly. They, they're being asked indirectly. And, and Jesus holds out one thing continually. And the world continually holds out another thing. Uh, when we look at Jesus, we see that He is the example for us for distinctive living. He is holding out for something that, that seems intangible at times. But if we look at the Scriptures and we read, especially the New Testament, we see that God has always had a plan for a distinctive people among Himself. We would coin this to say the body of Christ. Now, if you've been in church land, uh, this doesn't seem that weird to us. The, the body of Christ, we've heard that. But just think about that from a perspective like where, where someone who doesn't have a faith background hears this. Well, you guys aren't a body. What do you mean by a body? So there's this, even God is continually, we look back in the Old Testament, looking for people living under His gracious, kind rule and in obedience he, who show God's goodness and God's glory to the rest of the world. That's what He wanted Israel to be. He wanted Israel to be a distinctive group of people who set themselves apart, who worship the one true God in spirit and truth, 
He wanted these people to find enjoyment of a relationship with Him. And even in the New Testament, what are we called? We are called, you can help me today, the bride of Christ. A distinctive people. Think about just how we, when we take on the marriage illustration, when, when we have exchanging of symbols, and you know, preachers will do like, it's a circle. Like, like, like people are like, uh, the penguins of Madagascar. Ah, you know, like, you know, like, like this, this is a circle, but really it's a distinctiveness. It shows I'm in a relationship with someone at a deep, 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 deep connection. This is what God has desired. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to look at these verses and, and kind of lump them up under some categories of distinctiveness. And the first thing I want to talk about is this, a distinctiveness in definitions, a distinctiveness in definitions. You look at verses three and five, his brothers are saying to him, hey, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples may see the works, man. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. You keep telling us you want to reach the world, and you're sitting in your bedroom playing video games. Come on, Jesus. Don't be playing Call of Duty right now. That was for youth. Adults are like, oh, no, I, Jesus wouldn't do that. I understand that. But what they're literally looking at him, um, this is the Feast of Booths. You look in Leviticus, which we won't do today. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 44, there's this Feast of Booths. It's one of the most popular feasts. And here's why. Because it's a really cool idea. God tells them, you guys are going to go build. You're going to gather together like Lollapalooza or Woodstock, all right? You're going to all get together and you're going to build makeshift dwellings. And and you're going to build these makeshift dwellings and I want you to remember and picture for everyone God's provision for His people in the past. You remember when y'all were in the wilderness? Y'all are going to do this. And they would do this and they would build these makeshift dwellings. And for seven days, they would, they would camp. Think about that. I mean, like kids love camping. And, and so you would, you would be out there and, you, and it's not like you're just out there by yourself. Because some people are like, man, I don't want to camp with just my family. No, your whole neighborhood literally is going. And so you can imagine kids playing tag or enjoying this moment. They would have this festival and they would be remembering and picturing God's provision. And we see how this affects his brothers and how they feel about success. This is what I want to pull on. They, They are questioning Jesus about what he thinks success is because they clearly have come together to inform their brother who happens to be the eternal son uh, God the Son made flesh on what He needs to know about something. Just think about that for a minute. When we come to reading though, I think sometimes we read the Bible and things come clearly. You know, like, oh yeah, that's what that, that I get that. Thank you, God. Sometimes we read the Bible and you got to study it. Like you get your study Bible out, you read something, you're like, oh yeah, this is good. And then sometimes you have to read, study, get a shovel out, a pick, and start knocking into the ground and seeing what you can find. This is one of those passages. But if you see uh, really what they're looking at in verse 4, if you would connect verse 4 back to chapter 6, verse 66, it says this, look at verse 66. Remember when Jesus told him, eat his flesh, drink his blood. Remember they said, this is a hard saying, who can do it? Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer walked with Him. What you need to hear about that is people who were following Jesus stopped following Jesus because He said, eat His flesh, drink His blood. You cannot be His disciple. Then He said, I am the bread of life. All these things. And He said that I am statement. And they're all saying, hey, you know what? His brothers are kind of powwowing around Him and saying, hey, you went off talking weird and people aren't following you. But there's the Feast of Booths, man. And Jesus, we think you need to get up there. Probably give a better thing. Like maybe you could turn some more water into wine. That'd be a great idea. Hey, while you're there, maybe walk across some pool of water or something. Do like a magic trick. And you say, well, why are you embellishing it that way? Because here's the point that John's making. They're suggesting this, but they don't even believe in him. They're just making a point here. They believed in their brother with the view of his popularity, but not as the status of the Son of God coming to save the world. And they're concerned that with Jesus getting his big crowds back. Jesus, don't you want your big crowds back? And Jesus defines success for us, and we need to lean into this. Jesus is defining success as daily obedience to the Father. What is his answer to them? My time has not yet come. He's saying, I am not going to do what you want to do and on your time frame because it's what you want. I'm going to do what God wants for me on the timeline of what God wants for me in the way God wants for me. Frederick Bruner talks about this. He says, what showtime, when he talks about having a showtime faith, what showtime does to faith is it demonstrates that our real belief and even our God is the world's praise. Christians must constantly watch for tort motives. You ever over-torqued a bolt? I'm building an engine one time with my, my uh, father-in-law. The thing I've learned in that is I will never build an engine again myself, ever. Oh my gosh, it is horrible. And he was like, hey, why don't you go put on, you know, the valve, I don't even know what it was, like valves or something. Literally, I am like not mechanical. And so I, uh, I go and I'm in there and I'm like just torquing them down because everything else we've had to torque down to like this ungodly level of it could never come undone again. And so I'm in there torquing down on this and he comes in and he's like, whoa, what are you doing? And I was like, you told me to put them in, man. I'm just making sure they get real tight. He says, no, we got out a torque wrench for this. These have specific torque limits of what they're supposed to be on. You might've just bent that. Luckily, he had caught me enough that I hadn't been it yet, but it really didn't look like I thought it, his other engines looked when I saw what they looked like when they're put together. I was like, well, something's going wrong. This is what Showtime Faith does for us. It shows us that we want the world's praise. We, we want people to look at us and say, man, come on, look at what we're doing. Isn't this awesome? And Jesus is like, I'm not come to be awesome. I've come to be redemptive. Ooh, that's good. That, let me say that again. Holy Spirit, thank you. I've not come to be awesome. I've come to be redemptive. And redemptiveness is awesome. I love seeing people who literally are broken and beaten up by the world and Jesus puts them together. And you go, hey, preacher, where'd you meet people like that? I'll have preachers that like literally want to know like a silver bullet. Like, where did you meet this person? You know, uh, what, how did he transfer? What church did he transfer from? He didn't transfer from the church. He transferred from the world to the church. 
You should have seen him when we, we, we connected with him, man. He was hurt. The Lord put that man together. Jesus is real. And so he's living life, and life is about stories. And we're created by God to belong to the story, the story of God. The problem is we live our life most of the time based on our story, not realizing the greater story. And if your hearts are centered around God's story, and we attach our hearts to this other story, all stories have definitions. I mean, even in the creation story, when we go back to Genesis, and Satan is trying to undo what God has done, what does he literally tell them? Hey, there's another definition on what life is. It's in that tree over there. Go to the tree. You'll find out some real new definitions. Enough to intrigue man to do it. We look at the temptation in the wilderness that Matthew writes about when Jesus is drawn away into the wilderness and, great, and greatly tempted by Satan. What's the, the ploy of Satan on the eternal God the Son made flesh? He literally kind of says, hey, just give me one little moment of praise and I will make you famous. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, you don't even know what you're talking about. Jesus is showing success is daily obedience to the Father. If you need to hear anything out of this message, hear this. Success is daily obedience to God. That's success. Number two, though, in verses 6 through 8, we kind of lean into, as he's clarified, his uh, time has not yet fully come, because of His definition being different, His direction is different. My time isn't to do what you want me to do and how you want me to do it. And the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I'm the one that's testifying about things that are true. I'm the one that's saying this. He says, my time versus your time. He says, my time has not yet come. You guys go ahead. You guys do this. And Jesus is modeling that he knows his time is limited. You know why this would have hit his brothers a little weird? Jesus is what? I don't know, 30 years old? So for 30 years, they've gone to the Feast of Booths. And for those 30 years, they went together. And Jesus is saying, hey, hold on. My time has not yet come. Y'all go ahead and go and I'll be there. Uh, my time hasn't come. What's he literally showing? There's a distinctiveness now in the direction of my life. God is on the move. And I am here to do the Father's business. As Christ followers, Jesus modeled and has given us different direction for success in life. We're not positioned to direct our lives any different either. If He is doing it differently, then as a follower of Christ, I'm going to live life a little differently. How many times do we find Jesus saying things like this? I only say or do what the Father leads me to do. Like he's got an earpiece. You know in the movies today, when, when a guy needs to know what to say because he keeps fumbling on himself. And you're like, here, wear this, say what I say. In a corny way, Jesus doesn't go off on his own here. He is directed step by step, daily, by what the Father is leading Him to do. I guess what I'm saying here is this, that the, world, the world's demands don't dictate the directions of our lives. 
this is, this is what you're supposed to do. You're, you're supposed to get out there and you're supposed to do it this way. Who said so? Who said so? One of the things I'd, I'll just share, transparency that I don't do. People go, what kind of church is this? Uh, when we, finally, we explain, well, we're Southern Baptist Church. And one of the things that I haven't done, maybe the Lord will change my heart later in this, but right now, every year, there's this thing called an annual church profile. And they want you to send in all these statistics um, about what you know, metrics were and, and, and send it into the, to the state convention. And they want you to report about it. I have filled it out this many times. And here's why. Because what it does is it puts everybody in this business mindset that bigger and better is better. And it also puts this mindset that I get invited to be on special committees and special invites because when I was a youth pastor at a church that turned it in and we baptized 70-something students two years in a row, guess what happens? I get like this spotlight, like I'm like the LeBron James of youth ministry. And everybody's like, oh man, you know, we need you to tell us what God is doing and everything. And I was like, man, listen, it, you know, and if I didn't do that, you, you wouldn't have invited me. I'm sorry, I'm out. I don't do this. I love you guys. I see what you're trying to do. And your heart may be pure as gold in this. For me, if I turn this in, I'm going to be completely convicted the entire time. And then you're going to mess me up psychologically because when I don't see someone come to know the Lord, I must not be sharing the gospel. But then one year I share the gospel the same way I've been doing it and I see bunches of people come to know the Lord and it's like, man, now, now I'm doing something right. You're messing with my head. I've got to stop hanging out with you. Because this isn't about a show. This is about living an authentic life. Who is calling the shots in here? It is the Lord. And if the Lord's calling the shots, man, then we're going to do it and we're going to play ball. We're going to play ball His way. How do you know when you're letting Jesus call the shots? And I answer that by saying it this way. When you really want something, but Jesus says no. When you really want something, and you've asked Him, and you feel like the answer is no. You know, when your heart craves something, but it's outside of what God really wants. Uh, this happens and the Lord looks at us and He says, no, you have to know something about this. That when God says no, He is not holding out on you, but He is calling you to something better. Here's where we find out what we treasure most. Lord, I really, man, I really want to do this. And God's like, no. Well, come on. And if you find yourself getting angry in those moments, here's an even more concerning point for us. When we get angry in these moments, we're really doubting God's character. I see this a lot in parent-kid relationships. You know, I love watching parents, all the different styles of parenting. Um, Joey, we said no. Joey, one, two... Three, don't get, don't let me get to five, Joey. Four, five. And it's like, you're like, the hostage situation has just begun. You're like, it's like a movie. You're like, what is about to go down? Like literally, you know, what's going to happen? Or you see parents that are like, let's, you know, uh, just different things. I mean, I, I don't even want to embellish this. I love watching parents because I don't want to name anything that anyone in here does. But, but it, what I do in my home, 
Literally, I'm like, hey, this is the, this is the way it's going to be. And one of my kids will remain nameless. You can, I'll give them some anonymity, but um, uh, it's a she. So there you go. I've narrowed it only to four. And, and she will say to me, you hate me. You hate me. Hate me. Looking for me to be like, I'm so sorry. Please come back to me. I don't hate you anymore. I don't know what she's wanting in her head. To, to which I go, no, honey, I don't, I don't hate you. But why can't they just see that our no's are because we love them? But here's the thing I want to ask you. Why can't you see God's no's in a way because He loves you? I mean, think about like just answering it. Like sometimes what I'll do in my sarcasm as I'll be like, I am so sorry you feel that I hate you. You are right. We should totally let you do blank. In fact, and then I go further than they could think. We should also probably let you do this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And I drag it out, and she's like, at first she's like, yep, yep, yep. Wait a minute, what's he doing? Yeah, well... And I show her how it derails the situation if we let you go, yes. Or we could just say no, and you wouldn't have that hurt. The point of the matter I'm trying to hit is, we continually think if you want it, it can't be wrong. When that is a terrible theology. Like, you know, if I want it, it can't be wrong. That's like the road to obesity right there, right? So what does spiritual maturity look like here? Spiritual maturity looks like when the creator of all pleasures becomes your pleasure. When you realize God who created things, wanting you to enjoy it, do it His way. This is like if I was talking to youth about sex. It's like, this is God's idea. Don't you think God has a better idea of how this should go down? I would always like try to joke with them for just a moment, just to like make them squirm a little bit. I'd be like, I want to talk to you about having great sex God's way. Which means you won't until you're married. Because the creator of all pleasure is supposed to be your pleasure first. Then these things happen. Does Jesus have authority in your life? Let me ask you that, friend, today. Does He have the authority in your life? John Piper says, God's prohibitions are protecting His greatest pleasures for you in Him. Your, God's prohibitions are protecting His greatest pleasures for you in Him. So in our childish moments, which we will have, and you do have, and if you're going, oh, I don't have those moments with God. Liar. Pants on fire. Your nose just got big. It's, it's looking very, very big. When you have your childish moments with this, and when we come back to Him, here's what we find. When I run back to the Lord, the way I'm meant to do this, two things happen. Number one, I find out God is better. Or, I catch on that He really is enough. I really wanted this. God said no. But instead of being angry, I run to Him. I find out 
He is better or He's enough. You know what that does do? It brings resolution. Jesus lives distinctively by definition, by direction, and then lastly today, in discernment. He is distinctiveness and discernment. Look at 16 and 17. He says, So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is He who sent me. If anyone who's, anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You heard me just a minute ago say a phrase and I was like, wow, God, that's pretty cool. I probably should just say that again for my own benefit. There's moments where you're, you're leaning into this and we can see things that the world just doesn't see. We see things the world doesn't see. Once we're born again by the Holy Spirit, as John chapter 3 talks about, you're able to go all in. But look at me, that doesn't mean that we do. I'm just saying you can be. I have a phrase, I say it often, lost people act like, Joel, what do they act like? Lost people. Saved people ought to act like saved people. Doesn't mean they do. but we're able to. So let me just say it this way. There's a caution for us. Following Jesus is not a pick and choose endeavor. I like eating at buffets. And I like eating at buffets because, I mean, come on. It's just great. But also because I have a bunch of kids who have differing interests. You're like, well, what am I going to eat at this place? Dad, who hates us. Well, child that I love, whatever you want. Just go pick and choose it. If you want meatloaf with mac and cheese, they can make that happen here. No, Dad. Maybe on the mac and cheese, not on the meatloaf, right? I don't even recommend the meatloaf at Western Sizzling for those who need to know. But I want you to know that this is not a thing where you come to Jesus and you say, hey, you know what? I need a little bit of your love, God, but I really don't want the discipline thing. I really don't even really like to hear the word no very much. Can we turn those into maybes? You know what maybe is, right? Maybe, someday. Those are like tactical delays for parents. Like learn that language if you don't have kids yet. Maybe. Someday. I started doing this one. Let me pray about it. And Chloe would go, pray about it right now. And I'd go, okay. And I'd close my eyes and she would whisper, yes. Yes. Pray about it a little bit more, Dad. No, I think the answer is no. Jesus has not only purchased your justification, how to be right with God, He has purchased your obedience. Think about this. If you will follow Him, He purchased grace that would enable you to live as His people. He is purchasing, pairing, sealing us with the Holy Spirit to live as a distinctive people. Second Peter, write this in your Bible or in your notes. Second Peter 1.3 He has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. You can do this. Everything I'm talking about today, you and I can walk out of here and do. It's not like God's just got something on us. The gospel of grace has both comforts and calls in it. 
comforts because we're made right by His work, not yours. We're, we're adopted into God's family because of what He did, not you. You're forgiven because of what God did, not what you did. You're secure in God because of what He did, not what you. But those points, they comfort me, but they inform my heart more to Him completely as the bride of Christ to find my greatest satisfaction in knowing and living life with Him. I mean, it's interesting to me how people, especially junior high people that I observe, run into relationship, right? I mean, uh, we, we've seen things of romance movies uh, that we watch and we hear you know, Tom Cruise say dumb stuff like, you complete me, you know? And there's these moments where, you know, you just, you see this love of relationship because why? When you meet somebody or you're hoping to meet somebody that can, can provide some things into your life of comfort and that comfort beckons you to lean into them more, to enjoy them more. This is what God is doing, friend. He is the bridegroom. And He is comforting us. He is providing for us. He's calling you to lean in more to relationship with Him. And there's this calling in it. Imagine today, just for for all better purposes, imagine what would it be like to be free from the trap of worldly brokenness and its definition of success? To now already be called a success. To now live out of this success that you have with the Lord because of what Jesus has done for you. To quote Warren Wearsby, we don't fight for victory as Christians. We fight from victory. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. What would it be like to flip this and say, hey, we're not going to live chasing this rat race of the world. Winston Churchill or someone said this, Someone's much smarter than me, so I'm not coming up with this on my own, but he said this. When you're 20, you care what everyone thinks. When you're 40, you stop caring what everyone thinks. When you're 60, you realize no one was ever thinking about you in the first place. This is so true. How many of us live a life, we dress a certain way, we, we act a certain way to get this certain somebodies to like us, whether that's uh, you know, someone that you're trying to be in an intimate relationship with or just friendship. You want them to be your friend so badly. You do everything you can in such weird ways to look a certain way. And then you find out one day, one day you finally achieve it and you get to know them and you go, I would never have liked them and never will like them anyways. They're just not my cup of tea. But you've bent everything for that moment. What would it be like to be freed from that? Jesus is living a distinctive life. He has grown up with his brothers. They have gone to the Feast of Booths often. Jesus uses this moment to say, my time has not yet come. Y'all go ahead and go. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, my time hasn't come. Yet then he shows up. He then begins to teach in such a way that he's saying things that they go, how has he said all these things when he has never been learned before in these things? How is he doing this? And then he continues to press in and he starts breaking this down very clearly. And then at the last part of this, in verses 19 through 24, Jesus ties this all together for them. He says in the phrase in the scriptures, I did one work. What's he pointing out? 
He's pointing back into John chapter 5 when he healed the man who had been an invalid for 38 years in the pool. You remember that? And when did he do that? He did it on the Sabbath. (gasps) Jesus. You would do that on the Sabbath? You remember they're so hurt about this that they cannot celebrate a man who's been healed completely from 38 years of being an invalid because he did it on the Sabbath. Jesus you are not doing a good job at being a religious guy. And you've made us angry. Jesus, I did one work. <laughs> and then he goes, marvel. And you marvel. He's not meaning marvel in a positive way. He's saying they marveled in displeasure. You guys marvel at this in displeasure because I did it on the Sabbath. And then he says, that weird phrase when he says, Moses, verse 22, gave you circumcision. Not that this is from Moses, but from the fathers. What is he pointing out? He is pointing out that it started, circumcision started before the law with Abraham. It's not even a, a, it's not even a law thing that you think it is. It, it precedes the law. And so, let me ask this weirdly. Maybe you're like me. So, okay. Circumcision, Sabbath. I feel like there's an argument going on, but what is going on? I'm like, I don't really understand this. You ever hear people like talk and they kind of disagree, but they're using words you don't know. I've watched two engineers one time talk. I've had, had that real good feeling of that. They're like, well, you know, the 674 valve plugged in with the 74G, you know, brings a discombobulation. Well, you know, Jerry, I disagree because... Part number G57. You know, you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about, man. I think y'all should use duct tape. That's what I think. Duct tape will fix this. What is circumcision? What is Sabbath? What's going on? Jesus is saying to these guys in a certain way here. He says, you guys have a situation in the law that says you circumcise the boy on the eighth day. That's what you do. And it is important. I get that. What do you do if the eighth day is on the Sabbath. Uh-oh. Now you've got to observe the Sabbath. But you've got to circumcise that child. Which one's going to be more important? Well, if we don't uh, follow the Sabbath, we're going to have to confess that. Okay, great. Uh, but will God forgive you for that? Oh, oh yeah, yeah he, yeah, he will. What will happen if you don't circumcise this child on the eighth day? He'll be cut out from the covenant people of God forever. Okay. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and circumcise him today. Right? And this is what Jesus is pointing out. What did you guys do if this fell on the Sabbath? You had a hierarchy of what was greater importance. You had a choice to make for the greater good. And Jesus is saying to them, guys, this is what I'm saying. What I did is more than circumcision. I made his whole body well. That's what I did. And so circumcision and Sabbath pictured redemption, and rest. Can I say something even more depth? When you really dig down, Jesus is saying, all of these things are being fulfilled in Me, and I am your redemption, and I am your rest. It's Me. All of these things are modeled in Me. Um, Good cross-references for this would be these. Uh, We go back to John In in chapter 5, you remember this verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. 
over, you don't have to turn there, but I just want to read it to you because it's beautiful words. In Colossians, the Scriptures, and Paul's writing the church of Colossae, and he says, uh, in Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. That's a good verse. How about Hebrews chapter 4? God does drink coffee. He wrote a book called Hebrews. Okay. And in here, and these first 13 verses of chapter 4, it literally continually goes back to the Psalms over and over where God is saying, those who are cut out from the covenant people of God, I have sworn they will not enter my rest. But then he goes on, he says, but let us therefore strive to enter this rest so that one may fall by the same sort of obedience. And here's what he's saying, for whoever has entered God's rest, has also rested from the works as God did from His. He is literally saying, we see the works of Jesus bringing rest. Now I want you to ask you a question. If you've grown up in church, how many times have you studied the life of Jesus and felt guilt-ridden to do something in the faith? And I want to tell you that was religion. Not Jesus. Jesus empowers us with His Spirit on the inside. He never works with guilt on the outside. He shows giftings to us, reveals giftings to us, but doesn't place a yoke of gifting to do something for Him, dance for Him, perform. It's not like the Western when they have the pistols out and they're like, dance for us! Woo! Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! That's the, that is a bad theology to think about. Boy, you better do this. You better do it. He doesn't threaten. He heals. He comforts. He guides. He directs from within. So Jesus is not just your model. He is your fulfillment. But then I want you to hear this today. He's your rest. I read this the other day on the internet. I thought it made sense. It's It's not from the Scriptures. (laughs) When God put a calling on your life, He already factored in your stupidity. Most comforting thing I have ever read. And I was like, can't agree more. Can't agree more. You know, you ever heard that God doesn't call the qualified? He qualifies the called. How do I know that? I am your pastor. If you need to get to know me a little more, you would realize, I don't really know if there's... His pedigree really isn't bred for this, I don't think. And correct you would be. But He calls, and then He equips, and He blesses. In Christ, we are free now to be able to be all in on the following His will for your life. You're able to be. That doesn't mean you will be. Frankly, 
We control the heat of this moment, do we not? It's like two people driving the car, and, the, and I've shared this before, but it's just something that stuck in my head when I heard it as a new believer. They're driving the car, and the girl you know, is not driving. I don't know why, just for the exhibit. If you want, it's 2022. The woman can drive the car. The guy's going It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just lean into the illustration. They loved each other deeply. They used to always kind of like snuggle and cuddle in the car, even though there's something in the way. But time has passed, and they are now looking. Uh, she's looking out the window. She says, hey, I miss the days when we used to ride close and have intimate conversation. And the man says, well, I've never moved. I've been driving the car. So often as the bride of Christ, man, God's taken me from, He is moving in my life. I'm in that other passenger seat. I really do control some of the intimacy of this moment. If I don't want it, if I'm even in the attitude of childish behavior, you just don't like me. I need to check my heart. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Jesus said, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I find that encouraging to me. And as I close today for our time of response, I want to say two phrases. Number one, when I was dead in my sin, I could not live the life God had for me. You see, we don't talk about going to church and churching yourself to eternal life. We talk about coming to Christ and believing so that you would receive eternal life. The, Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that all of us were once dead in our sins. We weren't just wallowing. We were literally lifeless. I was Thinking I had life, but really spiritually, I was lifeless. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who is dead. You've seen it in the movies perhaps. But if you've ever been in the room with someone who literally has no life in them, it is a paralyzing moment to observe it. To realize there is nothing. Listen to me. Before Christ, there was nothing. But Paul says, but God has made us alive together with those who put their faith in Christ. And it's by grace I've been saved through faith, and it's not of myself. It's a gift so that Lee won't boast. So when I'm dead in my sin, I could not. And what am I telling you? If you have not put your faith and trust in Christ today, don't think coming to here and doing some of the things that I put in your sermon and just putting a little bit more hard effort to it will change your life. Listen, friend, you're missing it. God changes my life. And then literally, things move in a different direction from that day forward. Just a little bit closer every day. You don't have to be a good person here. We just need you to believe in the One who is. Number two, but now... When I dwell in my sin, I cannot live the life God has for me. This is important on communion day, right? I was dead in my sin. And I've been saved from the power of it, but not the presence of it yet. And I can dwell in the presence of it. But I will forfeit something. The life that really God has meant for me to experience. 
someone once said, oftentimes we need to realize that God is never disappointed in you, but He's disappointed for you. There's a difference. Oh, Lee, if you would just lean in and know what I have for you, Lee, you would gladly put this aside. And you would gladly follow me in this. Is there an area in your life where you feel like, man, I'm dwelling on those things? Then Romans 1.9 says, if I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Listen, if you're here, you need to know Christ. What He does, man, here's what it looks like. If you're dead in your sin spiritually, man, call out to Him in prayer. Say, God, I realize what you've done through Jesus. I realize you sent Jesus because there's no other way. I put my trust in Him. I believe in Him today. I ask you to change my life. I believe He's alive today. I know you're coming back, God. I want you to change my life. Petition Him, man. Talk to Him just like you would anybody else. And real communication and then say in the name of Jesus, amen. And that begins a relationship. And then celebrate it by telling people. Change the direction of your life. If you're a believer, then you know what I'm hitting at. May the Lord lead you and may you respond as the Lord leads. Let's pray. Father, as we have a time of responding to you and your word, God, I pray you would lead us to know what it means to have a different view of life, to live in a different direction. God, I just I pray that those are, those are things that are hard because, Lord, the things of the world do look attractive. And Lord, we, we all want to be accepted in it. I know that we are accepted in You if we've trusted You for salvation, but some of us, Lord, have gotten over that. So Lord, if we need to fall back in love with the beginnings of how things started, Lord, whatever it looks like, may Your Spirit lead us. Father, I pray that if there's someone here who has yet to trust You, that Holy Spirit, You would draw them to the belief and trust in Jesus. Lord, that the Gospel would be attracted to them is what I pray. They would see there will never be good enough. That they should just trust You. God, You do only what You can do, which is change our hearts. Lord, we love You. We want to worship You in this moment. In Jesus' name.